Well, good morning, Redemption Church. And you know what? It's been a little while since I told you that I just really love you guys. Like, legitimately, I love you guys. And thank you for being such a rad community of faith, a great church. Uh, just means uh, just a huge blessing to me. I was just reflecting on it this week and all the relationships and all the ways that we've grown together over the years and as we're seeking to still fulfill our mission in the community and everything else, I was just like, man, this is a great place. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for just being a great, great church. And so that's the first thing. Second is thank you if maybe you are a guest with us this morning. Uh, very happy that you're here. And normally what I do on Sunday mornings uh, after service is I stand out at the door and I greet some of our new people. But I have a summer cold today because I babysat my grandbabies and they gave me the gift of their sickness. And so I won't be out there because I love you enough. In fact, even as the worship team was all coming off, normally as they're going off and I'm standing there, there's little knuckle bumps, high fives, saying thank you, good morning, and instead I'm just standing like this away from them as much as possible because I love people enough to not make them sick. And so uh, anyway, I won't be out there this morning, so missing you on that, but thank you if you are a guest with us today. Now, with all of that said, we are in a nice little short end of the summer series that we are calling Dave's Playlist, and that is all about the Jerusalem Billboard 150. It is about the book of Psalms, which is the Spotify of the Bible, all right? That's how simple it is. All of those 150 Psalms are songs, and they're meant to teach us different things in different ways. And yet, here's the thing I would say about this kind of collection of works. And that is that no one psalm is quite always the same. The psalms don't always do the same thing in every way. They really exist with some diversity, as much as music in our own world, right? So we know that there's styles of music in our lives, and psalms are sort of like that too. It rolls in with different styles. For example, how many in this room are country music types? Good chunk. You got friends in low places. All right. So totally get it. You, you got a hole in your britches where your heart fell through. That's great. Your dog died. You got to get beer, whatever it is. Okay. So country music. How many disco people? Dude, the Bee Gees though, man. Xanadu. It's where it's at. All right. So yeah, how about that? How, how many people are like uh, rap folks? Wow, look at that, man. Back row's like, yeah, we'll say it loud, say it proud. Snoop Dogg's my man, whatever. So that's cool. Uh, let's see, uh, what else? How many uh, metalheads? <laughs> my people, all right? Yeah, my gym playlist is ridiculous, man. I just love heavy metal. It is the best. How about those love songs like Chicago, Peter Cetera? Oh, Right there, just boom, right where it's at, right? So what we know about music is, man, it is vast, it's broad, it's diverse, and when you hear it, it has different motivations, right? And it's all meant to kind of unlock different feelings. And so sometimes in music, it's very upbeat, positive, jovial, and fun. Other times it can be dark, kind of depressing. I think about like even the grunge scene of our greater Seattle area, which you got a grunge person right there. Thank you. I mean, some grungy stuff is happy and some grungy stuff is like, wow, we really need therapy. And, and, and that's why, like, Nirvana, love me some Nirvana for that reason, man. There's some depths in there. But music does all of that. It touches all of those places. And sometimes it's very angry, and other times it's trying to get our attention. Sometimes it's patriotic. Sometimes it's profoundly moving, like our worship set today. There's all sorts of stuff that is wrapped into this style of music. And the Psalms, frankly, are no different. 
as we read through them, we realize that they are flowing from a place of emotion and perspective and question and celebration and also, frankly, frustration. At times, there is deep anger in the Psalms, anger at enemies, and as we'll see today, some anger toward God. And so what this teaches us a little bit about the Psalms, and this is kind of a little bit of a Bible scholar lesson for just a second. Uh, when we read the Psalms, we should not necessarily approach these as being uh, prescriptions on how to live. But we should read these as descriptions of how people were wrestling with God, worshiping God, working through things with God, of which some of those things we should say, yeah, I want to graph that into my life. But there's other things you're going to read in the Psalms where you go, that is a cautionary tale of what happens when you go down a road and you don't want to have that kind of cycle in your own life of what you see maybe in a particular song of this particular work. See, in other words, what I'm saying is uh, sometimes uh, a writer of the Psalms will say things that are not necessarily accurate of who God really is, or it is not necessarily a good account of what godliness may look like. And so strangely, and I hope you can track with me on this one, strangely enough, the book of Psalms is an inspired text of God that has occasions where there is air when it comes to morality or theology, where they come with a broken idea, but they're just sharing their heart in their moment, in their space. This is what they think. This is what they're singing. This is where they're at. No different than a lot of music that we are exposed to today. I'll give you a very concrete example of this. Uh, in Psalm 137, uh, the psalmist is lamenting over the fact that Edom has invaded the region. This is kind of connected to Babylon. And they're very angry that they have lost this battle and they're longing for the day of God's justice. And the last line of that song says, happy is the one who takes your babies and dashes them on the rocks. That's in the Bible. That's in a worship song from a person that is very angry and frustrated, that they've watched their culture get decimated, and in their frustration, they're like, this is how I feel. I would call that like thrash, grunge, emo music, right? That's where they're at. And, and, and yet that's just their, their human reaction in the space that they're in. It reminds me of like, you know, like rivals in a sport where the rivalry gets a little too crazy. And you got like three guys on the sideline and one guy's like, we're going to crush you. And the next guy's like, we're going to mop the floor with you. And the third guy's like, we're going to beat your moms with a lead pipe. You're like, too far, dude. Like, too far. And that's kind of like Psalm 137. The writer goes too far but it's what they're wrestling with and it's how they feel. So yes, in that sense, it's errant, but it's also in the Bible to remind us that you know what? People all struggle with different things in life. People all struggle with fairness or unfairness in life. People all share their good and their bad, their ugly and their beautiful. Sometimes it's all about holiness and sometimes you see in there a certain sense of their wickedness. It's all in these Psalms. And you see the same thing in Job. You see the same thing in Ecclesiastes. In fact, I remember one commentator on Ecclesiastes said it's the most errant book of an inspired Bible because the person's just sharing their life, their heart, their questions, their frustrations, their wrestling. And what I love about this is you may not be aware, but the name Israel has meaning. It means wrestles with God. 
So literally, the nation would do that. And I think the journey we're on with God is a journey of wrestling. Why does this happen? Why does that not happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad people seem to get ahead in life? All of that stuff is sort of in there, and the same thing then comes out in the psalm we're looking at today. It is Asaph, so it's not David this time. It's another writer of music in the Old Testament, but he's got some frustrations, and he's hurting and it's the story of a despondent soul in Psalm 77. And so as we get underway with this, I want to remind you that we do have an app. And in that app, there are notes that you can follow along with, blanks that you can fill in. All of the verses are going to be there. Uh, so you can kind of have those for down the road if you want to, want to reflect on those again. But I want to go ahead and just settle us with some prayer for just a minute as well. Because I, I know in going into Psalm 77, uh, some of us are going to go, I don't relate. And then others are going to say, I relate quite profoundly and then there's gonna be people all in between and, and, and maybe you're in one of those spaces more than the other right now maybe it's the best time for you spiritually that's awesome maybe this is one of the worst times for you spiritually so whatever your space i want to pray for all of us that we would grow learn maybe find some healing find some help and find some direction for life so let's go ahead and pray together jesus i uh, i thank you that uh, you are uh, patient with us. Like, you understand that we as human beings, we will naturally have all sorts of questions. And because the way you've kind of wired things and, and the, the, the means by which you integrate into our world leaves us at times with mystery, with confusion, with frustration, uh, with maybe hopes that don't feel met, whatever it is. And, and I pray that in that, we will not grow weary or faint or so frustrated we just give up but rather we will keep kind of pushing and seeking and longing and wanting of what it is you have for us. And so heal us up today, teach us up today, prepare us maybe for a season that may be hard so that we're ready for when that season comes. But we look to you, Jesus, and we thank you and we praise you. So we ask that you teach us this day in your good name. Amen. All right, so last week we were in a psalm where we had the author David longing for the presence of God. That was Psalm 63. But today the tone shifts. And it's the first point in your notes. We come across Asaph, and he is a guy that is shouting at the absence of God. Very different. Starts in verse 1 of Psalm 77. He says, I cry out to God. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long, I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven. Now, the thing you want to understand about how this begins is throughout the psalm, we're never going to find a particular reason for whatever his plight is. In other words, it's not going to be, I have this enemy that's against me. I have this nation that's bewildering my, my sense of justice or whatever else. There's no context given to kind of the frustration that he's going to be in. In fact, if anything, I tend to think that probably while there were more outside forces that were creating some strife for him, this is just about his own inner grief, his own anxiety, his own depression in some context. And part of this is going to be derived from the fact that he is a good Jewish boy. He's thinking about God's promise in the book of Deuteronomy that God will bless the righteous and God will curse the unrighteous. And I think he's got questions because he's like, wait, I'm righteous. I'm, I'm being godly, and yet, man, I'm shouting out for God, and it's not working right, and what's the story? In fact, what he feels here when it says troubled or in deep trouble, it, it, it literally means in the original language, the narrows. 
he feels pressed. He feels crushed or strained. It's like the weight of life is just putting all of his life in a tiny little box. It's claustrophobic for him, right? And so he has been spending hours begging God to do what God promises to do. He's like, God, you said you will show up for those who seek you, rely on you, depend on you, call on you. So I am calling on you like a crazy man. I'm pacing, praying, probing heaven, hands lifted, right? Hard poured out to you. But, he says, my soul was not comforted. I don't know if you've ever been in that, that margin of life where you're like, okay, God, show up. I need you. I need to sense you, feel you, hear from you in some capacity. Just a subtle little something to let me know you're paying attention and you care. That's the world that he's in right now. And what happens after pouring out, crying out, praying all night long is God leaves him stranded. Stranded in his trouble. Stranded in the narrows. And so he says, I think of God and I moan. I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. See, I, I, I read this and some people tend to get troubled by things like this in the Bible. I so love it. I so love it because I love the raw honesty of it, the transparency of it. Like I kept doing the right thing. And after doing the right thing for a long period of time, I got nothing from doing the right thing. That's the way this person's feeling, right? Because he's been seeking, he's been praying, he's been begging. And early on, he had hope. Like, hey, if I just do this, God is gonna show up, right? But now, after it's been going on for a while, he goes, when I think about God, I don't go like, he's my savior and my rock. He goes, when I think about God, I just go, Brr. because that word moans, when it's used most of the time in the Old Testament, it's used of like rage. <laughs> it's, so it's not just like sigh. No, it's it's deep pent up frustration. Like what's going on, right? And so this isn't just like hey, I'm I'm just whatever. It's just like no man, I'm 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 I'm, I'm angry. He's like, come on, God, give me a break. You're all powerful. You're all present. You're all knowing. Right? You're always faithful? Really? Because I'm trying here. This is why he says he's overwhelmed with longing for God's help. What this means is not like, um, uh, I, I'm so longing that I'm overwhelmed for more of you. But rather, he's like, man, I've been longing so much, now I'm overwhelmed. Like, I've been trying so hard, and there's been nothing to show for it. And so all of this longing is beginning to do something in him, which is it's not creating relief, it's creating grief, right? Because when you do something for a long period of time and your expectation is you're gonna get a certain result from doing that thing, and then you keep doing that thing, and after a while you find that nothing's going to occur, you start going, you know what, this isn't worth my time, this is actually more frustrated than it is freeing, this is more discouragement than an encouragement, and that's the space he's starting to find himself in. Prayer is leading to discouragement, not encouragement. He says in verse four, you don't let me sleep. And so now where I'm at is I'm too distressed even to pray. Now, just in a moment of my own transparency, that might sound odd to some of you. 
But see, I, I love Psalm 77 because I've lived Psalm 77. And maybe some of you have also, where you've been going to God for a long period of time, seeking his presence, seeking his intervention on something clearly, concretely, just unapologetically in the Bible, this is God's only stated will. And you're asking for him to do a thing that is his only stated will, and it's not happening. And after a while you go, you know what? Prayer just makes me angry. Actually, to pray doesn't relieve my heart. Praying actually frustrates my heart. And see, like I said, I'm just being open with you. I've been in that space where there was a season where I said, God, we just can't talk. Because as soon as I started to pray, I just started to rant. I started to just get frustrated. And then I started to challenge. Come on, dude, show up. Right? I double dog dare you. Because I need something. Because I'm getting nothing. And I'm being faithful, my life's obedient, my private life's obedient, my public life's obedient, I'm doing everything you're asking me to do, and I'm asking for the thing that you say you want, and it's not, so I, I get this. To where finally you're just so tired. You say, I can't even bring myself to pray because it just gets ugly every time. It just erodes my soul more than liberates my soul. That's his feeling too. From this, he continues. He says, I think of the good old days. Right? The good old days, long since ended. I try to reflect on the good stuff to move me through the bad stuff. I try to remember these things that you've moved in my life back in the past as grounding for the present. I'm trying to get traction by coasting on this remembrance. Because that was when my nights were filled with joyful songs. Right? back in that glorious golden era, like we even saw, saw in Psalm 63 last week, that, that time that just refreshed David back at the sanctuary of God, and he's trying to lean into that. Well, that's what Asaph's trying to do. He says, but the problem when I think back, and now I think about now, is that my, my soul begins to ponder the difference. I'm searching this out, and I'm kind of weighing one against the other. So it's a mental exercise he's going through. It's like he has a spreadsheet, you know? It's like the pros and cons. You know, I remember this good thing and this good thing and this good thing. And God showed up here and God showed up there. And when I was down, he was here. And when I was up, man, he even made it more up there. And he's in that space. So he's working hard to reflect back, to give him strength to go forward. But then from this, it leads to a new space in his thinking, which is he doesn't go like, oh, yes, God is good. He begins to wonder, is God good? Thus, number two in your notes, he begins questioning the guarantees of God, right? In other words, um, where he's been kind of um, praying and pondering, um, hoping that it was gonna draw him close to God, it's beginning to push him away. Or he's beginning to wonder if God has stepped away, even though he's a good guy trying to do the right thing. This is where his brain goes, right? And so it's feeling very one-sided for him. Like, hey, I'm, I'm seeking you. Do you seek me? I want you. Do, do you want me? So he's wondering if God's guarantees are standing firm. Now, to understand this idea of God's guarantee, because it's the right word, um, I need to take you back to when the guarantee was forged. So back in the book of Exodus, 
chapter 34. Back, actually, in chapter 20, it's when God gave the original Ten Commandments. And then um, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. He finds all the people worshiping idols because, again, they're jack wagons that do dumb stuff. And so he smashes the tablets and everything else. But then God's like, okay, we're going to just reboot, kill them all, deal with you. And then he's like, no, this is your nation. You promised. He's like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to lead them. And so let's reboot in chapter 34, and we're going to recraft the Ten Commandments. So in verse 4, it says, Moses chiseled out two tablets of stone like the first ones, which are the Ten Commandments. And then early in the morning, he climbed Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands, and the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he uh, then called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfaithful, um, unfailing love to tens of thousands of generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I don't excuse the guilty. So both I bless, but I also don't let sin just run rampant. He says, I'm making a covenant, a pledge, a promise, right, with you in the presence of all of your people and all the people around you will see the power of the Lord, the awesome power I will display for you. That section in Exodus is an anchoring point for the people of Israel. Like, if, if you were to say, what is one of the most important texts for you in all the Old Testament? Exodus 34. Because it reminds of the covenant, it shows us the character of God, that he's all these great things, but he doesn't allow sin to go unpunished, he's going to deal with that, but outside of that, he's going to do all these great things for you. And so if you distill down what is promised in there, it's that Israel's God has sworn to guarantee favor, covenant, loyalty, promise, graciousness, and compassion. Six qualities guaranteed to all holy, faithful Israelites. But now Asaph is wondering, verse 7, has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? You get his emotion, right? The slamming of the door. And these are all understandable questions. They're all very earnest and honest. What you may not realize is that every question corresponds to all of those qualities that are in Exodus 34. So they're a direct reference to what God had promised and pledged to do. So when he says, has the Lord rejected me forever? Because if so, he's revoked his favor. And will he never again be kind to me? Because then it has to do with he's revoked the covenant. And then the unfailing love, well, then he's no longer loyal. And about the promises, then I can't trust anything that God may say. Has he forgotten to be gracious? Because he promised he was to be gracious to a thousand generations. He said that he would have compassion. So if the door is slammed on his compassion toward me, perhaps God isn't keeping his promises. The best way I can explain where he is at in his feelings on this day is he's saying, all right, God, is it all a bunch of crap? Is it all crap? Did, did you make promises you're not gonna keep? Did we just hand stuff down that doesn't really count? Is this all just really cutesy, but it doesn't have any real bearing or meaning? If anything, he's getting very close to this space of saying, I just want to know, are you a liar? Are you a liar, God? Because where he's feeling is, God's a liar. Remember when I said there's things that we read in the Psalms 
that are meant to be there, inspired of God, filled with air? Well, I think this is an inspired work with theological air because after raising these six questions, he says to himself, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. Right? That is his resting conclusion at that point. God has promised to protect the righteous, but now the same arm that strengthens is now the arm that shoves me away. As one commentator said about this section, um, Asaph is now brushing straight into blasphemy with his feelings, right? He is. He's just like, all right, God, I know you said things. I know you made promises. I know you made covenants, which are blood oaths that you must keep, but you're not keeping them now. So what ifs? Right? Again, I appreciate the honesty. Now, to be clear, back in Exodus, he did say, hey, but I repay for sin. Like, if you sin, I'm going to then step in with judgment to correct you, to restore you to right walk and standing. But, but there's nothing in this psalm, outside of now his blasphemy, that shows that what was happening is God's like, man, I got distance from you because you're a sinful dude. I am, I am actually dealing with your sin problem. There's nothing in the text that shows that there was this sin thing in him that God is then estranging him with. It just seems, for whatever set of reasons, God is letting him go on this journey I don't know if I fully understand it, but I don't think he understands it either, so he's working with what he's got. And so he's fatigued, he's frustrated, and now he's almost like, like daring God to do something. Now what's interesting, to me at least, is that many times in the Psalms, uh, it's about this point that you see this like turning point Right? Where there's this unloading, there's this frustration, there's fear and angst, and then there's a, oh, but now my head's screwed on straight. And some English versions, even like the one we typically use on Sunday mornings, the New Living Translation, it kind of puts something in there that makes it feel like it's that turn. But almost all commentators on this psalm go, no, there, there's no turn in the emotions of the psalm. If anything, he's going to double down in his frustration and highlight some things by kind of going in a certain route where he doesn't show brokenness before God, but if anything, he begins to kind of like try to bait God into action. And that's number three in your notes. Using God's past against him to force the response of God. Right? He's gonna try to use, hey, you did this in the past. So if you're really that God from the past, then I wanna see you do something in the present. So in verse 11, it starts in the New Living Translation by saying, but then I recall all that you have done. That but then isn't in the original language. It's just kind of added to give transition. And sometimes because of that, we go, oh, but then I really got okay, and I'm going to reflect on all the great things you've done. We got to remember, he's already reflected on all the things God has done, and what it's led him to is frustration. So now he's going to go further back, not to his own life. He's going to go back to some hallmark stuff of God in the formation of Israel, and he's going to bring some stuff up. But I certainly concur with uh, many of the commentators that the tone here is not, oh, but now I remember. No, it's this recollection of almost like um, resentment that you were big to former generations. You're not big now for me. Maybe that's a way to read it. So, 
I recall all that you've done, O Lord. I remember your wonder-filled deeds of long ago. They're constantly in my thoughts, right? I've cataloged all the ways you showed up. I can't stop thinking about your mighty works, right? So again, I I see this more as a lawyer cross-examining like a defendant, you know? All right, let's talk about it. Let's talk about all this cool stuff that you've managed to do for others that you can't manage to do for me, which I get that. I totally get that. Maybe you felt that way too at times. Like, why a miracle for them, but no miracle for me? Or why did you do this with their kid, but you didn't do it for my kid? Or why did you do this with their sickness, but you didn't do it for my loved one's sickness? Whatever it is. Like, we all can have those spaces. And he seems to be in that kind of space. In fact, if we talk about songs, to me, this one is Alanis Morissette. Angry. I'm here to remind you of the mess you made when you went away. Right? Like, that's the heart. So we keep our foot on the sarcastic pedal where he says, oh God, your ways are holy. Is there any as mighty, right, as you? You are the God of great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations out there, our enemies even. By your strong arm, you redeemed your people. The same arm that he says now pushes him away, right? But you used it for good for others back then. Your descendants though, way back, Jacob and Joseph, right? Oh, and don't, don't forget the Exodus. Huh. When the Red Sea saw you, O oh God, the waters looked and they trembled. The sea quaked in its very depths. The clouds poured down rain. The thunder rumbled in the sky. Your arrows of lightning flashed. Your thunder roared from the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world and the earth trembled and shook. He says, then... The road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. You led your people along the road like a flock of sheep with Moses and Aaron as their shepherds. See, again, we already know that he has pondered history and come to the conclusion that God has kind of abandoned him. So this little journey is again saying, come on, dude, step up, step up. You did big stuff in the past, do big stuff now. In other words, that's kind of his ultimate purpose here. You did it back then, so you need to show up now if you're still a God who keeps his word. Like it's a double dog dare, right? Fulfill your character. Fulfill your promise. Fulfill your oath. Now, I want to be clear. The way I'm reading Asaph here is that he's irreverent, which is not uncommon to the Psalms, but it's also understandable. And, and while he's wrong, it's also very real, And what's interesting to me is that that's where the psalm ends. It ends in this reflection of, hey, you showed up. I think you've abandoned me, but you showed up for everybody else, and then it just stops. But it reminds me of Jonah. If you're familiar with the story at the very end, not just a dude and a fish and the Ninevites, but the fact that at the end of the story, God redeems Nineveh, and Jonah is angry. I can't believe it. I knew you would do this, God. Mr. Gracious God saving pagans that are my sworn enemies. And so God rescues Nineveh, and Jonah is upset and resentful at God for that. So in a similar fashion, Asaph is just laid down, you've done this and this and this for everybody else, the nations, our ancestors, you name it, but you've abandoned me. So what, God? What? What, God? What are you going to do, God? And then that's where it ends. So let's pray. 
All right, now, um, you might be going, dude, what do we do with that? Well, I don't know whoever did whatever they did with Psalm 77 when it ended when they did I can say I'm not fully sure all that we can do with that, but here's some things that I thought about as I was kind of pondering this. Uh, the first thing, I, I just want to say it's understandable. It's understandable to be frustrated or even angry sometimes toward God when he feels distant or it feels like he's not showing up. This idea that, that somehow, you know, you're, you're just nothing but broken goods if you feel that way. I, I go, I don't know if that's true because I see repeatedly in the Psalms. Uh, we're gonna see some others in this series where it's like, why have you abandoned me, God? Why have you ditched me completely? And it's like, well, God's all present. He hasn't ditched you. But for David, he felt like that had happened, right? But that happens when you feel maybe spiritually drained or spiritually lonely, right? And you're wondering, does God listen to my prayers? Is he attentive to my problems? Is he paying attention to my life? Like, that's just an understandable thing. Now, I wanna be clear about that. That is real understandable, but for the sake of your own spiritual health, you don't want to stay there. As much as you can, don't keep trying to jackhammer your way down to the bottom because you're, you're, you're just gonna keep going down, right? And, and so the feelings are understandable, but you don't wanna just park there or make that your whole life focus and then you just get darker and deeper down, right? The second thing is that even in those times, I do believe it is still worth it to go to war in yourself to both pray, even when it might turn into an argument or a debate, and to remember back to those times when God did good things in your world, even though it may not feel like there's good things now. Try to reflect back, because I'll do that sometimes. Like, you know, I'll be really, really fatigued or worn out or whatever else, and then I have to go back and, but, but God, you were here, and you were here, and you were here, and you were here. Now, sometimes there can be frustration, so why aren't you here now? Or I prayed and prayed and prayed and you haven't done anything now and you have to war through the frustration. But there is value and keep trying, keep pressing, keep moving because even for Asaph, eventually there was some breakthrough, not in this Psalm, but eventually there was a breakthrough because he's written other Psalms. It shows that he continues on. He it seems very cyclical. Sometimes he's frustrated. Sometimes he's at peace. Sometimes he's angry. Sometimes he's cool, right? But I think that captures the essence of the human condition, certainly for some of us more troubled souls. But then there's a third final thing that I would bring out in this. And it's in the retelling of Exodus, right? Where, where he talks about uh, the Red Sea and everything else. And he has all this description of tempest and chaos and torrent that's in there, right? But then in that, I don't know if you noticed, he says, but then God, you had a secret path through the sea. Right? And, and this is so interesting because in their culture, they saw the sea as, again, like dangerous, darkness, chaos, craziness. In other words, the very way Asaph feels, he does feel frustrated, tossed to and fro, feels like a life tempest. He doesn't understand why God, who is good toward the righteous, and he's righteous but feels like God isn't being toward good to him. He doesn't get it. So he's just, man, he's in the churning chaos. But he, even in there, probably he isn't paying attention to what he says at the moment, but in there, it's, but God has a secret path in the chaos. He has a secret path in the depths. You may not see it, understand it, know it in the moment, but he's got a path for you in it. Now, may not be clear. Eventually, though, you will probably be able to look back and be like, ah, now I get it. Now I get it. Some of the darkest days of my spiritual life 
have led to some of the biggest breakthroughs for me personally when it comes to even like grace, understanding the care and love of God, having a love affair with like the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, Fruit of the Spirit, definition of love, these things that are core to me were all because God's like, I'm gonna take you through a rotten time and I'm gonna be a little distant in that, but there's a secret path that I'm taking you on. That's the way I'm gonna shepherd you, right? Which David talks about that too. Lo, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right, that's how it feels. But on the secret path, God is with you. He's always with us. I think about that with Joseph in the book of Genesis into Exodus, right? Like he's thrown in jail, he's accused of all this kind of different stuff. You never see in the text where God audibly ever speaks to Joseph. That doesn't ever happen with him. Um, and, and, and it says often, though, the Lord was with Joseph, even though the Lord was silent. Right? And, and we want to remember in these seasons, the Lord is with us, even if it doesn't feel like it. The key, though, is to be honest, be open, have grit, and be resilient. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for honest personalities in your word that wrestle in ways that we wrestle, that are unapologetic about their frustrations, that say things that are irreverent, even at times blasphemous. And yet in that, you teach us. Everything teaches us. So may we always be students. And may we always be seekers. May we never give up, even when it's hard because we know that you have a secret path you are taking us on and you are growing us in the process. Jesus, we love you. We thank you and praise you in your name. Amen.